Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code, the management consultancy for what happens next. For more information, you can visit heroncode.com. In this podcast, we will be talking to female leaders of today to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. I don't view candidate profiles that way at all. I'm very much more focused on people's actual work experience, what they've done with their lives, even whilst they were students and even whilst they were waiting for a job to come along. They're the kinds of profiles and talents that I'm more interested in looking at and considering for a job. Because those kinds of profiles, once they join an organization, when you go through difficulties and hiccups and ups and downs in a company, you can rely on the fact that they would probably have more emotional resilience Mm -hmm. and be able to like strive through the complications. I'm very for work-life balance programs, uh, flex work and flex place policies. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to determine to whom do we give them, when do we give them, mm. how frequently do we give them. Actually, to me, birthdays are those days where one just takes a step back and reflects and asks themselves many questions. Mm. At least that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of look at my entire life journey, not just career journey, and, and yeah. think of where the kinds of choices I've made. I feel that whatever I'm doing, it has to connect or resonate with my life purpose. Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code. The Heron Code Women in Leadership podcast continues for season three. I'm your host, Nimi Mehta. And today's episode, we are joined by a passionate leader focused on developing talent and helping others fulfill their potential and hopefully mine today as well. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, uh, Canary Kareem. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nimi. It's it's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure even more because it's your birthday today. It is my birthday today. Yes. and and, Happy birthday. Thank you. And it's the first time I do a podcast, so it's always nice to do something new on your birthday, right? Absolutely, absolutely. This is what I chose to do today. Yeah, you're (laughs) celebrating with us, and I absolutely love that. Um, You and I have something in common, which is London Roots. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to take you back to the beginning. Where were you born, and then where were you raised? So I was born in Jeddah, and I was raised by a single mother who was very passionate and and hardworking and a trailblazer Mm. in her own rights, uh, God rest her soul. And she decided to just take us along to London. We often travel to London on a like a yearly basis for tourism and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we went to London when I was around nine years mm-hmm. old. And I was basically raised in central London. So between like Kensington, Chelsea area. And then I lived there for just over 10 years. Wow. It was kind of a migration plan, mm-hmm. but we eventually came back, obviously, yeah. Saudi Arabia. So I'm very much a Londoner in my thought process, in my speech, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, in everything I do, it's just uh, growing up in the UK, obviously, as you know, it's such a cosmopolitan place. Yeah. And I, I truly feel that it really shaped me, shaped the person who I am today mm. um, in, in more ways than one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that a tough move for you at the age of nine? Everything you know, then... All of a sudden, uh, I mean, it wasn't sudden seeing as mm. you had been traveling anyway. Was that a tough transition? I would say it wasn't. The transition wasn't going there when I was a child because mm-hmm. it was too young for me to really absorb anything. Yeah. Um, on the contrary, adjusting at the beginning was a bit difficult, of course. My mm-hmm. English wasn't as fluent and it took time to, to pick that up. Had some tough days in, at school. Yeah. Especially with my name, Canary. Mm-hmm. As you know, children are, they like to, to mock uh, one another at school. Yeah. But I mean, looking back, it was like the best experience of my life, to be honest. Mm. What was tough was actually returning back to Saudi Arabia and then adjusting because then you're like, you're, you're a young adult. 
And it took me ages to adjust. Yeah. I'm not even quite sure if I've fully adjusted, yeah. to be honest. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me about that time then. So you've moved to London, mm-hmm. you're studying, and paint a picture for me as to what you were like as a personality. So believe it or not, I was actually quite a tomboy uh-huh. when I was... Um, when I was young, um, I was always getting into fights at school, <laughs> constantly. Mm. I won't go into any more details, but, <laughs> but then I might say something I might regret. Um, and then things start, you know, started to turn around. I started working at the age of 14, Wow, which I'm very proud of. Mm. And I would urge many other youngsters to do so. So I started working part-time jobs during the weekends, first mm. of all, and then all my summer holidays. So I think, yeah, so basically... My last four years, so from the age of 14 till 18 and a half. I, was, I mean, I was nearly 19 when we returned. Mm-hmm. So all that time I was working. And I think it really builds your your soft skills, your integrity and your resilience. Mm. Um, it just makes you a bit more, you know, it gives you more street credibility, I yep. would say. And at the same time, a sense of ownership, a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would advise it to, to everyone, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Were you a big dreamer when you were younger? Did you have thoughts and big ambitions of what you wanted to be when you grew older? Yes. And my ambitions were in no way had nothing to do with human resources management, human capital management. Yeah. So I had various ambitions. Mm-hmm. There was one point where I wanted to be a clothes designer. Mm-hmm. And I was always like studying fashion and, and you know, looking at magazines. And, um, and I did a tapestry and design um, O-level. Uh-huh. And then there was another point where I wanted to be an architect. <laughs> And I still want to be an architect. So, I mean, I love architecture. Wow. Um, I'm just constantly, wherever I go, I intentionally travel to countries where they have amazing architecture and so on and so forth, always looking up at the sky and at buildings and mm. so on. Then I thought, let me study architecture. And I did a, I can't remember actually the level that I took, mm. but it was design oriented. I'm not too good with mathematics. So okay. then I dropped that one because you have to be really good at mathematics to yeah. be an architect. Basically, then I thought of mass communication. Obviously, as a youngster, looking back now, at the time, you don't think of your thought process, right? Mm. You, you just go different ways, especially since the, ed- the British education system really allows you to do that, yeah. you know, to do like a variety of O-levels that need not be necessarily interconnected. Mm-hmm. Our education system in Saudi is a bit different than that. Okay. So looking back, I realized that I've always been on the creative side mm-hmm. because, you know, one is fashion design, the other is architecture, and then the other one is mass communication where mm-hmm. you still thinking of how can I communicate the bigger picture yeah. via different ways, you know, to, to, a, to a specific audience. But I am nowhere there now. <laughs> I am now in, in human capital management where I do try to be as creative as possible mm-hmm. in, in uh, making our employees, uh, our colleagues as happy as one can make them mm-hmm. uh, during the career progression process. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like we live in a world where it's okay to have multiple dreams now. And we're no longer in boxes where if we do a engineering degree, we have to be an engineer. You know, we do have that freedom to yep, to kind of move away from it. And luckily, I feel like the world has also catered to us creatives more now. Because growing up, I felt a lot of pressure with academics. I was not an academic at all. Mm. Did you recognize that quite early on? And how was your mum in understanding <laughs> that she's not into academics, but she has other passions? I mean, my mum, you know, Larissa her soul. It was tough for her raising two daughters. So she, she was a single parent, mm. my mother. I'm also a single parent, mm-hmm. by the way, but I have a grown-up son now mm-hmm. whom I'm very proud of. You know, in reflection, in hindsight, you really think that this lady back in the 
I don't want to say dates now because then one might calculate my age. But <laughs> back it was in the a, day. Back in the day, yes. <laughs> so it was in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. So in the 80s for her to decide to take her two daughters off to London yeah. and raise them on her own. And she also, by the way, worked at the Saudi Arabian uh, Defense Attaché. Mm-hmm. So she was one of the first females to, which is why I really call her a trailblazer. Mm. At the time, we don't see it that way. But as you evolve and as you, you know, as you have more experiences in career management and female talent management, mm. you realize how difficult it is for women really to break the barrier through different areas. And looking back then, I realized that, honestly, my mother was a trailblazer. So going back to your question, mm. so how did, how did she manage at the time? I think with difficulty. Yeah. Because I honestly wasn't, as you said, mm. very, you know, academically oriented. I'm very happy, though, to have graduated with seven O-levels yeah, and wow. three A-levels, mm. which, as you know, A-levels are not an, uh, an easy thing to pass um, at all. But at the time, like, I felt, I honestly thought I never would. Yeah. And the nice thing about the British education system is that it's okay if you don't. Mm. You know, you have other options. Whereas I think our education system is nowadays is mm-hmm. more about you have to have a bachelor's degree, then you need to move on to a master's degree. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, why don't you just get a PhD along the way? Yeah. And I honestly don't view people that way. Mm-hmm. I don't view candidates that way. I don't view candidate profiles that way at all. I'm very much more focused on people's actual work experience and what they've done with their lives. Mm-hmm even whilst they were students and even whilst they were waiting for a job to come along. Yeah. They're the kinds of profiles and talents that I'm more interested in looking at and considering for a job. Yeah. Because those kinds of profiles, once they join an organization, when you go through difficulties and hiccups and ups and downs in a company, you can rely on the fact that they would probably have more emotional resilience mm-hmm. and be able to like strive through the complications um, and, and, and move on to greener pastures, hopefully. Mm. That's my perspective. Yeah. Versus like a clear cut CV or profile whereby the individual was just sitting in their parents' house for God knows how many years, yeah. did their bachelor's, then did their master's, mm-hmm. and then afterwards thought, oh, let me go and get a job. So by the time they've got into the workforce, they're already like maybe, I don't know, close to 30 or something. Mm-hmm. I, I feel those profiles are a bit more difficult for them to adjust. Not being biased, of course. Of course. But, you know, I, I, I honestly believe that the more experiences you have at a younger age, mm. it really builds builds that character for you. Yeah, it is that it is that debate, long life debate about, you know, uh, experience versus education. And, you know, the way things are shifting at the moment, at what I think especially since COVID, and, and you, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me, is that companies and brands are now actually looking at their staff as actual humans. You know, there's empathy towards individuals. There's Mm -hmm. taking into consideration their lives, their responsibilities. So how do you think that shift is going so far? And do you think it's going in the right direction? The other reason why I'm I'm in the UAE right now is that I was speaking at a conference. Mm. um, I'm partaking in a panel at a conference the other, uh, over the past couple of days. And in the conference, these topics were were opened up, of course. Yeah. Uh, The employee experience, how people are reacting post-COVID, so on and so forth. So I see it, some organizations, to be honest, I feel are going like overboard Mm -hmm. in focusing on employee mental health awareness and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and providing too much flexibility to colleagues. Now, of course, it's good to provide that work-life balance and so on and so forth. However, I don't think it should be like a broad statement across all functions. Yeah. And it sometimes takes away from the human interaction in the workplace. Mm. And come the end of year, you're really unable to assess people from all perspectives on their networking, on their integration uh, with their colleagues, on their uh, effectiveness, you know, as a people manager, honestly, mm-hmm. because you're only just judging a person by via their online presence, yep. basically. Mm-hmm. 
And that does take away from doing a holistic assessment of an individual. Mm -hmm. So I have a balanced kind of mindset, I, I believe. And I believe in a midway approach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, in Arabic, we say, which mm -hmm. means the midway is the, is the best way. Mm -hmm. um, and having a balanced approach, for sure, I'm very for work-life balance programs, uh, flex work and flex place policies. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to determine to whom do we give them, when do we give them, mm. how frequently do we give them. And for sure, we need to be more understanding of our colleagues' situations, life requirements, uh, mental health, so on and so forth. But we have to apply a balanced approach. This is this is how I see it. Yeah, absolutely. And so tell me about that time when you left London, you moved back to Saudi, you said that was more of an adjustment transition to, to move back. Mm -hmm. What were you doing at that time? Is that when you got into HR? No, funnily enough. Um, so I've had a bunch of jobs. Yeah. Right? So first of all, when I was a teenager, we have to say this because mm -hmm. I do like people to, to know what... I hate that some individuals, teenagers or youths or, and parents, think that it's a shame or it's shameful to work in certain jobs or certain industries industries or what have you. I don't I really don't see it that way mm -hmm. at all. As long as you're doing a decent job and you're earning your own money, that's something to be that's admirable versus yeah. shameful. Mm -hmm. So I my first job as a teenager was in a clothes store. Mm -hmm. And then I did a couple of clothes stores as well. There was one called Jean Jean. I don't know if you remember it. No. Yeah, it was on Oxford Street. Uh -huh. And then I worked in Carnaby Street and a couple of clothes stores as well. And then I moved into the, the pharmaceutical area. Then I worked in pharmacies. Okay. And, and I became very much interested in healthcare and in pharmaceutical terminologies. And mm. I actually picked up a lot because I would be working behind the counter with the pharmacists. So I did that for three years. So when we returned to Saudi Arabia, well, the first job I got was a part-time teacher mm. for half a year. Wow. And then the second job I got and the place where I was there for 11 years, actually, was the National Guard Health Affairs, which mm -hmm. is a healthcare facility, a very famous one in Jeddah. Mm -hmm. And my medical terminology and pharmaceutical background, uh, working in the pharmacy for, for three odd years, really helped me pass that interview. And so I worked in that hospital first as an interpreter, because basically I was just armed with English language yeah. skills and, uh, and English literature A-level mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and others. And so I was an interpreter at the beginning. Then I was a patient services assistant. So working alongside the doctors in the healthcare wards to take care of patients and see to their needs and so on. And then I moved to the logistics services department uh, when I was at where I was an administrator. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to HR. Wow. So I had gone like on a journey of eight to nine years mm -hmm. in, uh, in the National Guard Health Affairs throughout these different departments. Mm -hmm. And only then I moved to HR. So, so far I've been in HR for uh, just over 22 years. Wow. Wow. There's a common theme with all of the roles that you had, though, and that was giving back, you know, serving the community back. Where did that come from, this want to serve? Could be my upbringing. Mm. Um, I've also thought about that a lot. Mm. And even in my selection of career opportunities, I have certain industries I wouldn't work in. I prefer industries that are somewhat associated with building a society, mm. developing a society. As you said, I mean, I've, I've worked in healthcare, so it's, it's giving back. I worked in education again uh, during my career. Mm -hmm. I've worked in urban development, which mm -hmm. once again, urban development is uplifting a community, building infrastructure. So the long-term intention there is giving back and changing a society. Mm -hmm. I then joined PepsiCo. So PepsiCo, often people question, oh, but PepsiCo, but it's carbonated beverages, so on and so forth. Mm. Obviously, PepsiCo has a plethora of, of, of products. PepsiCo, the reason why I joined there was for was a twofold, actually. One was uh, Indra Nui. Mm -hmm. So at the time, she was the global CEO. And, you know, I felt that if 
she's the CEO, then the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move into an organization where there would be no glass ceiling for female career growth. And at the time when I joined, 70% of the global board were mm. females, actually. Mm, wow. So that was one uh, reason. The second reason was the agenda that PepsiCo has, which is the performance with purpose agenda, mm-hmm. which is exactly as you said, it's, it's all about giving back. It's mm-hmm. all about all of the programs we run across a variety of countries and more so underprivileged uh, countries as well, mm-hmm. where we run programs where we're giving back to that country. Yeah. And then, and then another company I joined was Johnson & Johnson. Mm-hmm. So once again, I went back to healthcare. Yeah. And Schneider Electric, also an energy management company, but we did a lot of projects globally where we give back to society as well. Mm. So yeah, I often ask myself this question. Actually, to me, birthdays are those days where one just takes a step back and reflects and asks themselves many questions. Mm. At least that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of look at my entire life journey, not just career journey, and, and yeah. think of where the kinds of choices I've made. I feel that whatever I'm doing, it has to connect or resonate with my life purpose. Yes. And... And I always advise people that even when you're selecting a company, always make sure that it connects with your and resonates with your personal life purpose. Mm. If it doesn't, then whenever you you meet hiccups, you'll quickly back out. You won't be able to go through that strive forward and uh, affect the change that's required. Mm. But once it does resonate, then you'll always there'll always be that emotional connection with the company. Mm -hmm. And this is where your emotional resilience will kick in and allow you then to to persevere and and overcome the obstacles. Yes. So this is this is the this is how I I select my career opportunities. And I have to make sure that it connects with my life purpose. And my life purpose is to always do something that from a holistic perspective does give back to society. Mm. I was having a conversation with a really good friend of mine and we were speaking about following your gut. Mm -hmm. And that kept resonating with me as you were saying that. Because, you know, aligning with companies or that have the same values as you, you know, these things ring in my head a lot. Do you feel like throughout your journey, you have been very loyal to your gut? And has have you been very self-aware of, yes. of your gut feelings? Yes, I have been. Mm. Um, but you have to be intentional about it. You get to a point, I mean, for sure, the first couple of career opportunities you have, you may have not been thinking that way. I feel actually with Gen Y and the Zillennials <laughs> generation, they are, I mean, the majority of them, I feel that they're much more aware because there's enough materials and, and enough communication on, on throughout various media platforms that speaks to those areas. Yeah. When, I don't want to say back in the day, it makes me I, I'm not that old, <laughs> but it's, you know, back in the day. Yeah, previously. <laughs> yeah, previously, <laughs> there weren't so many materials around, right? Mm. And, you know, for you to write your book, you had to go to a library. Yeah. And then the types of books and, and materials that were available did not speak to those to those elements. Mm. Um, the uh, the mental awareness, the, the life values, the connection, the uh, making sure that the choices you make resonate with your true self and listening to your gut feeling. So now there are much more communications around around those topics. And so therefore, the, uh, you know, Gen Y and, and Gen Z are able to, there are tools that enable them to be directed in the right, uh, in the right direction. Mm. But I think over time, over my career, mm. I've had to exactly, as you said, li- listen to my inner voice, be selective with the choices I make, uh, the companies I choose to, mm. to join. It's a personal choice at the end of the day. It's, yeah. uh, you know, the way I look at it, it's what does the company how does it add to society? Mm. What type of programs does the human capital function here? Or what type of programs is the human capital function here going to be enabled to, mm. to run? So to me, being in human capital management is in itself giving back to society. Yeah. That's how I view it. Mm-hmm. I view it as my opportunity to be able to nurture young talent, mm-hmm. uh, roll out new programs, 
for example, develop mid-level female managers and, uh, you know, put them on a program that can fast track their career growth. Mm. So that's giving back to society. Mm. And so some of the first questions I ask in an interview are how much empowerment will I be given to run those kinds of programs? And, and you get to a stage where you need to take the tough decision that, you know, should I just join for a certain level salary and pay grade and so on? Or should I join because I want to be enabled to run X, Y, Z programs? And as I said, it's a personal choice. I've taken the latter mm-hmm. at this stage specifically in my career. Yeah. Where I really need to connect with the company's values and mission and vision mm-hmm. and ensure that I'm enabled to do those kinds of programs when I join the company. Yeah, absolutely. And and you really are such a strong leader. You're passionate. And I can hear that just from, from talking to you today. Yeah, Tell me more about your leadership approach because... You can learn from the leaders around you. You can mm-hmm. learn from the people that have led you. What have been your inspirations towards your approach and how would you describe your, your leadership style? I mean, my inspiration has been a, a multitude of experiences that I've gone through. I've worked with, uh, alhamdulillah, very good companies such as Johnson & Johnson, Schneider Electric and, and, uh, and PepsiCo. The longest term I've ever worked was the National Guard Health Affairs. Mm. So any healthcare environment is very governed Mm -hmm. and it's very organized because you're dealing with lives. You're dealing with human lives. Yeah. You can't dilly dally. Mm. You can't mess around. It's it's very, you know, straight cut. And so this is how I was, this is where where I came into the workforce. And so that was my upbringing. I think that has helped me to be structured and organized in in the way I manage uh, human capital departments going forward. And then thereafter, I would say PepsiCo was the most organization that mm-hmm. really enlightened me as to different ways of managing talent mm-hmm. and doing it in a fun way and in a passionate way and taking care of different level employees at the same time. And obviously, I mean, I had and the other organizations I worked in as well were, were very helpful. So that's the influence I've had. Mm-hmm. The other side of the question is my management style. Mm-hmm. So I honestly believe in situational leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, I think many people who would work with me, they would say that I'm very direct and straightforward and governance oriented. Right. Uh, I like to follow policies, procedures, but at the same time, I do like to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in uh, sticking to the same ways of working that we did many years ago. And, you know, I like to stay up to pace with the changes in our society. So, for example, post-COVID and even pre-COVID, but definitely Mm -hmm. post-COVID, people have become more focused on mental health awareness, taking care, allowing flexible career opportunities for people Mm. because people just became more comfortable with working that way. So for sure, I I ensure that I can instill those kinds of programs in any organization I have chosen to join post-COVID. And it's just driving that change, new ways of working. Yeah. I like to stay updated as much as possible with the changes in other organizations as well. I always like to tap into my, I have a number of human capital management friends Mm -hmm. and and we always like to tap into each other's uh, ways of working, what new programs you have in your company Mm -hmm. so that you can make the employee experience or the colleague experience in my organization as, as challenging as an exciting and as rewarding and invigorating as possible. Yeah. Because I mean, as I said, so for example, in Saudi Arabia, and as I'm sure you know, we have over 60% of talent under the age of 30. Yeah. And today we have, and within our, our industry of uh, automotive and oil and gas, we have approximately 55% talent under the age of 40. Right. So we're talking about Gen Y and Mm. Gen Y is actually young generation is not like before you would say 40 is, oh, they're mature. No, today 40 is not mature. Yeah. And in my company, we have 74% under the age of 40. So this type of talent, they need to be managed in a certain way. You know, Mm. they need to be guided in a certain way. They want flexibility, empowerment, flex work, 
policies, so on and so forth. So I always like to stay flexible. I mean, with my team, I'm open. I like to listen to ideas. We like to have as much fun as possible. Mm. I have an open door policy you know, all the time to the extent that like literally like the entire organization walks into my office <laughs> to the point that I feel that I need to like pull back a bit from yeah. my open door policy. But I mean, for sure, I'm very, I would say confrontational when required mm-hmm. and directive when required. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I definitely like to listen to people's opinions. And I um, think of, you know, I like to be as empathic as one can be mm-hmm. um, to people's uh, circumstances, personal situations and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think situational leadership is the best kind of way to manage um, talent. Yeah. And, and I hope that I'm, I'm doing it uh, mm-hmm. well enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, being a leader is tough. Managing people is tough. I definitely couldn't do it. (laughs) You know, I think that there are pros and cons to it. Can you share with me what you love the most about being a leader and then what the most challenging thing is about being a leader? What I love the most is affecting change Mm -hmm. and actually seeing change happen, you know, and, and getting people's feedback. When somebody comes in, so when I was just telling someone the other day, when you join a company and there have been previous leaders to you who would have had a closed door policy. Yeah. And when I say closed door, it's about closed in every single way that you mm-hmm. cannot contact me on my mobile. Mm-hmm. You cannot text me. You cannot reach out to me. Everything has to be via booked appointments, so on and so forth. That's no way to manage in this day and age. Yeah. That's not how I view leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe because I started working as a, at a young age. So I've always hated hierarchical, over-hierarchical kind of organizational structures. Yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe just organically, without me even realizing, I have intentionally ensured that, you know, as I became more senior, I tried to take away those barriers. Mm. For sure, you can't take them away 100% because then you would be labeled as a pushover, let's yeah. say, right? Yeah. And especially in, in our, in my sector, you have to, you you reflect governance and mm. um and policies and procedures and, you know, the right ways of working. So you have to ensure that you you maintain that all along the way. But at the same time, I enjoy having an open door policy and being as flexible and uh, allowing people to come and approach me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a few days ago, certain colleagues uh, reached out to me and because my phone number is available, mm-hmm. I make sure that it's available across the organization to all levels. And I've made sure that all my team's phone numbers are also available to the, all the organization and, and at, at all times. And then I said, what, you know, why are you reaching out to me? What, did you not reach out to XYZ department? Mm. And they said, because we heard that you're a person that can support us and you can resolve our problems mm. and that we know you're tough, <laughs> but we heard that you can help us. Mm. And that really, it really touches you. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, when somebody says that to you, uh, it really made my day. It was like an early birthday present. Mm. And so... So I don't. I mean, I don't know if that answers your no, question, but does. I feel that that's my management style. And you know, irrespective of how many organizational health surveys you do or feedback results you get, I always take them with a pinch of salt because sometimes people just don't have time to respond to the organizational health survey, or they didn't understand the question, mm. or it just wasn't structured in a certain way that one would understand it. We have over thirty-five nationalities in our organization, yeah. and some of them don't speak Arabic well enough, strong mm. enough, and others don't speak English strong enough. And yeah. when you have the OHS survey. 100% in the English language, mm. then, you know, it can be misconstrued. Some some individuals just essentially don't respond to it yeah. because they don't understand the questions. But having people be able to reach out to me and, and speak to me directly and give me their feedback is to me so much more rewarding 
and impactful than me looking at numbers of organizational health survey. Yeah. So those kinds of feedbacks from colleagues that were able to reach out and just, you know, open their heart to you mm-hmm. is so rewarding to me. And it makes me at least not too comfortable mm-hmm. that I, I shouldn't continue being a better leader. Yeah. At least it makes you feel that, okay, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. And sometimes, yes, you think, okay, why am I getting this text at this time of night? Somebody else should be reached up, mm-hmm. reached to it you know, with, with such a topic. But the fact that people value you enough yeah. And hear that you've done some good things mm. makes you just really, really, it's, to me, it's much more rewarding than a yeah. than an end of year bonus or whatever it might be. Not that I don't want the end of year yeah. bonus. I do want the end of year bonus, <laughs> yeah. but it's just so rewarding. Yeah. Um, and so going back to your question as about giving back to society mm. and making people happy. And I think with me, it's about giving a voice or being the voice of those that don't have a voice or those who have been fearful mm. of speaking up before. Yeah. And knowing that they feel safe enough to reach out to you, even if they haven't met you, mm. just having heard of, of how um, rightful you are, yeah. is, it really speaks volumes. Mm. Mm. You know, it just seems like you have built a path for yourself and mm-hmm. you are carrying it with integrity and following your gut and leaving behind a legacy. I guess. I I, I really do think so, especially for the youth and the next generation that are being led by you. I think it's commendable, everything that you have achieved, starting at 14 years old as well. I want to thank you so much for your time. I feel like we could probably go on for hours, but I don't want to waste your birthday. No, Um, thank you. But I want to thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed your first ever podcast. I did. I did. It's it's lots of fun. I tend to get nervous about uh, media um, (laughs) activities, but you made me feel very comfortable. I'm so glad. And and look, we would love to have you back on the show where we can catch up again on all your achievements. Um, So I thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Women in Leadership brought to you by Heron Code.